0: Like to take your Bibles out and open them up to the Book of Mark. That's where we're going to be beginning in just a moment. Mark chapter fourteen. As you're doing that, I'd like to thank you all so much for the encouragement that you bring to me by being here. I am always lifted up by my brothers and sisters here at Lake Street, and and it just helps me. We talked a little bit this morning about uh, reverence and. You know, coming back and being gathered back together and how that can just lift our spirits so much in the, the attitudes and the actions that we have towards our great God. And I appreciate you all for doing that. I'm so thankful for those of you that are visiting with us, uh, especially thankful for our visitor Robert from up on the hill. He has been just a great encouragement to me each time I've seen him. So if, if your Bibles are open to Mark chapter 14, I want to begin looking there at preparations and I'm going to say this now and I'm going to say it again at the end of the sermon, this is a chapter about contrast. This is a chapter that is intended for us to read through and think about differences that we see in action, in attitude uh, of, of the people that make it up. And so I want to begin by saying that as we jump into this chapter that we need to be looking for that. We need to be looking for the contrast that we find, Throughout the scriptures here. I want to begin just by reading the first two verses because what we're going to see is people making preparations for various things. Now, what's happening is the Passover is about to commence. This, this uh, religious holiday for the Jews that is going to be followed up by a seven-day, a week-long observance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's where we begin in chapter one and verse two, are chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. After two days, it was the Passover. And the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. Now, previously, this is that last week of Jesus' life. This is his last seven days on this earth. And what has he been doing in that last week? He's been busy. He has come into Jerusalem, and, and one of the first things that we see him doing upon going to the temple is turning over the money changers' table, that cleansing of the temple that we think about, uh, and pronouncing judgment upon it, calling it a den of thieves, bringing to their minds the prophecies of Jeremiah when he said the same thing to Jerusalem so many so many many years ago, and what followed that Babylonian captivity destruction of the, of the temple. And so he said some really hard things, done some hard things, made throughout his life, have made the religious leaders mad. And now we have a picture of these religious leaders and they are planning to secretly kill Jesus. The New King James says that they uh, thought they might take Him away by trickery. Uh, Your translation might say deception. Their intention is to secretly do something about this. He has been busy working in the public eye. He has not done his, His things behind closed doors, but rather in public. He has shown that He has come with power. He is the King. And now they are saying we have to do something about this. But we can't do it in the public's eye because there is a large gathering at Jerusalem. Again, this is the Passover. People have come from all around to celebrate the Passover, and and Jesus is developing a following amongst many of these people. (laughs) They look at Him, maybe not as the Son of God, but at very least a prophet, a man who has come and has done miraculous things, and He is worthy to be listened to. And they say, we know if we do something about this amongst this great crowd... It's going to end badly for us. There will be a riot that might ensue and that will not be good for for our lives in a Roman empire. That's where they're thinking prior to the Passover. Now I want you to think about where their minds should have been. They should have been thinking about judgment that had been spared. They should have been thinking about deliverance. They should have been thinking about the God of heaven that drew them out of Egypt. And, and, and made them who were not a people into a great nation of people. They should have been thinking about what He had done in their lives and how He had passed over their relatives, allowing them to live by the blood of the Lamb spread upon their doorposts. But they were thinking evil. and Their hearts were devising evil. And at this point, it becomes abundantly clear that that hard heart has set and is concreted in We are not going to change, and we are determined to do something about this Jesus of Nazareth. Now in contrast, I want us to read verses 3-9. through Here it says, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came, having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do do them good. But me, you do not always have. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Now, I want us to see this in contrast to what the religious leaders are doing. Here you have Jesus gathering together with His disciples, and He's gathered together in the house of Simon the leper from Bethany. Number one, Bethany is Jesus' go-to place of family fortitude. This is where He goes to be with the people that He loves the most. This is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus are from. This is kind of His home base outside of Jerusalem. When things get tough, when things uh, don't go the way that they seem like they should go, like when He comes to Jerusalem and finds no one in the temple ready to greet Him, He goes to Bethany. This is his home away from home. And he's there and he's in the house of Simon the leper. Now under Jewish law, no one should be in the house of Simon the leper, leper, save maybe Simon himself. So obviously it is very likely that this is a person that Jesus has healed. And this just goes abundantly to show the power and the love of Christ when he would look at someone that everyone else would say, I don't have anything to do with them. Because if I come into contact with them, I'm unclean. Jesus, being the Son of God, looked at them and said, I want to have everything to do with them. And when He came into contact with them, He didn't become unclean. They became pure. They were healed. And so it's very likely that this is someone who He has healed. He is in their home. And you have this unnamed woman who brings this oil. And she pours the oil on His head. I want us to first see some some imagery there. This was the way that kings were anointed. You go back to David and Saul. Samuel was sent to them and anointed their head with oil showing that God had chosen them to be king. Jesus is being anointed with oil here. The proclamation that has been going out from the beginning which says the king has come. The king has come to his city. The king has come to his temple. Now he's being anointed before all these, uh, all, all these people in the house. Here's the king, but I really want us to focus more on the woman and the actions of that woman. She uses a very costly oil to anoint him. I'm sure there, there were much cheaper oils that she could have used. I'm sure there were much cheaper oils that she could have somehow procured and and spent a fraction of what she spent. The disciples are upset by this and they say we could have sold that for 300 denarii. Now, I'm not proficient in the buying and selling practices of the first century. But in my experience, anything that I purchase immediately loses its value. If I want to go and I want to turn around, it can be brand new, still in the box, never been opened, and I can't sell it for what I paid for it. So I'm just going out on a limb to say that whatever this was, this oil that could have been sold for 300 denarii, it probably was worth more. It probably cost her more. But I want you to think especially about what that means, 300 denarii. Denarii is the the equivalent of a day's wage. The oil that this woman poured out on the head of Christ is very close to the equivalent of a year's worth of wages. If we were to to kind of equate that to our day today, a modern, um, middle-of-the-road yearly income is around $75,000. So let's say it's about $70,000 then. $70,000 worth of oil that she poured out on his head. You see the disciples, they're indignant. We could have done so much with that and you wasted it. Pouring it out on his head. And that shows me something. It shows me that it doesn't matter the value. Some people are always going to complain. Some people are always going to find a problem with the way that people give. There is a self-righteousness in the disciples that says, I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have done this with it. I would have done that with it. I would have used that so much better. This woman doesn't think twice about taking this great and abundant gift and pouring it out on Christ. And His response? His response is, leave her alone. Get off of her back. She seems to understand better than everyone else here. He says, she is preparing me for burial. She seems to understand better than all the rest. But it's his second comment that he makes that is so fascinating to me. In verse 8, he says, She has done what she could. It's really easy for the disciples to look at her and say, You could have done this. You could have done that. You could. Have. Jesus says, She's done exactly what she could, and I know it. I am aware. I see her and her heart and her actions, and she has done. What she could. In light of the great sacrifice that Christ was about to make, she has made a great sacrifice herself. And this is why she should be remembered. So we contrast that. This picture of people in in someone's home, someone's home that most people would not even be in, and they're preparing Christ At least this woman seems to be preparing Christ for His upcoming death, anointing Him with oil, comparing that to the religious leaders that are ready to kill Him, seeking a way to do this in private because they're filled with fear of what that might do to their reputation and to their power. And then also contrast it to what we read next in verses 10-11. through Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray them. I want you to notice that immediately following this very praiseworthy action of this woman, in which Jesus says everywhere this gospel is told, people are going to remember her. How many people really remember her? How many people really stop and think about her? And how many people remember Judas? Judas. See this very praiseworthy action of this woman to give so much is contrasted by a very notable action, to take, to take so much, to take the life of Christ and betray it for very little. If you'll remember, he takes the the the, the money that is given him is thirty shekels of silver. I've found ranges from two thousand to four thousand dollars. For that, what that might have been valued at. But what I want us to see is that is greatly different than 300 denarii. That is a much, significantly much less value than what she gave. There's a huge contrast being shown here that this woman of great praise and great honor gives abundantly, sacrificially to our Lord and someone so close to him is taking very little to betray Him. And I think we need to think about that for a minute too because I think a lot of times we just kind of label Judas as just someone who is of no value to Christ. He's just this kind of wormy, skeevy character on the peripherals of our storyline of Christ that shows up at the end out of nowhere and betrays Him. I don't think we should have that view of Him. The reason is because what we read next and the next contrast that I want to make. Starting in verse 12. It says, Now on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? And he answered and said to them, it is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. We need to see the point Of Jesus as he prepares to to observe the Passover and eat the Passover meal at the beginning of the first day of the the feast of unleavened bread. We need to see the point of all this. The religious leaders are preparing to kill him. Jesus, it seems, is being prepared for burial. Judas is preparing to betray him. But Jesus is still in control. Did you notice everything that he said in that passage? how random you're going to go here and you're going to find this guy and he's going to tell you to to go up to this room and things are going to be uh, are going to be in this order or that order and they found it exactly as he had said this is very similar to the picture we saw in mark 11 When He said, go into the city and you'll find a guy with a donkey and you'll say this and He's going to say that and everything happens exactly the same way that Jesus said it would happen. It's very similar to as He walked by the fig tree and said, you're going to be withered. You're going to be cursed. And they came back the next day and the fig tree was withered and cursed. Over and over again, He's showing His disciples, I'm not being caught off guard. I'm in control. I know what's happening. We need to see that. This is how things are going to happen. And we need to also see, as I mentioned before, that the person that's going to betray him, Judas, he's not this dark creature that just appears out of nowhere from his worst nightmares to do damage to him. This is a friend. This is someone who is close to him. He says, "Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eat with me, and we don't really recognize the significance of that. Eating with someone was a much more intimate relationship than we treat it today. We eat with people all the time that we don't even know, don't even speak a word to. That's not exactly how eating with someone uh, was looked at in, the, in this first century. In Jewish culture, this was an opening of oneself. This was an uh, entering into a relationships. that showed acceptance, It showed love. And he said, it's one of you guys that I'm eating with. In fact, I'm going to narrow it down. It's one of the 12, one of the people that I've chosen who dips with me in the dish. So not only are we eating bread, we're breaking bread together, but we're going to have this moment where our hands are close. We're dipping bread together at the same time. There's a great intimacy with this person. And he's using the same language that David writes with in Psalm chapter 41. Psalm 41. Listen to what David says in verse 9. Psalm 41 verse 9 says even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now that is a picture that actually looks back, not forwards. It looks back to something that we read not too terribly long ago in our in our scripture reading in 2 Samuel chapter 2 Samuel chapter 15. In 2 Samuel 15, David is having trouble with Absalom, his son. He is committing treason. And in chapter 15, we read of a man named Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's counselor. He is the guy that David goes to to ask for advice. He is the guy that David goes to and said, here's my plans, what do you think? He is the guy that has this intimate, close Family relationship. And that's the guy that goes to Absalom and says, let me tell you how to betray him. Let me tell you how to get him. Let me tell you how to kill him. David's not only his enemy, but his son. How hard it must have been to know that my son is out there and he wants to kill me. And I go to this close friend and say, here's what I'm thinking. This is my plan. And what do you think? And he's going to my son and he's saying, let me tell you how to catch him. This is a gross Betrayal, And yet, it's the same picture. David says, the guy that I broke bread with. And Jesus says, it's the guy that's going to dip his bread with me. Judas was his friend. His close friend. His trusted friend. And I hope that that's a characteristic that all of us can want to, to strive for. To be a close, trusted friend of Jesus. He is someone that probably spent every day for the last three years walking with Him, doing His bidding. And yes, He had problems. He's described as a robber, a thief in other passages. He wants to be in charge of the money. Uh, the, uh, the money. He may have been the guy that's complaining about the great price that, that she wasted. He had problems. But he was still Jesus' close, trusted friend. And Jesus pronounces a very severe judgment upon him for wanting to betray the Christ. We need to see the contrasts in all of this. All of this, a picture is trying to be made of people who should have known, who should have had eyes open to the coming of the Messiah. And at a time when they should be remembering their their Passover, they should be remembering their, their spare judgment, They're looking for ways to kill Him. A woman who is giving great amounts of of her wealth to bless and honor Christ. And a close friend who is taking a very small amount to try and betray and kill Him. And a Christ through all of this, despite all the evil, despite everything that's going on around Him, who's still saying, I'm a Jew. And I need to be taking the Passover right now. I'm not going to be distracted by all this evil. In fact, I want you all to know that despite all this is going on, I'm still in control. I know what's happening. I know what's been said about me. It's going to happen just as it was said. And that's not going to change the way that I'm going to act. I want us to think again about that woman for just a moment as we prepare to wrap this up. One thing that's interesting to me about that woman is that woman put no connection. No connection whatsoever between earthly, worldly, valuable things and the value of Christ. She doesn't compare wealth to Christ. She doesn't take what she has and say, I have to hold on to this at every just with every fiber of my being, I have to somehow try to hold this as long as I can because my value is found in the stuff that I have. She found it far more acceptable, far more pleasing to take her wealth, to take her things of value, and to use them to the benefit of Christ. And she's praised by God for that. And then Judas. (laughs) Oh, We'll never be Judas. We don't want to ever even think about us being Judas. But all too often, I'm afraid that people in the world, people in the church, maybe even people in this room, we're more like Judas than we care to admit. And we're less like this woman who says it's not about me, it's not about my stuff, it's about Christ. If we put wealth ahead of Christ the receiving of wealth, the attaining for wealth, the security of wealth, the comfort of wealth, then we're a lot more like Judas than we care to admit. If we put comfort and relaxation ahead of Christ, it's easier for me to just blend in. It's easier for me not to say the hard things. It's more comfortable to me to just kind of sit back here on the edge and not get involved with this world. And the troubles and the problems that arise in it. And we might be a lot more like Judas than we care to admit. If we let family come before Christ. I don't want to ruin that relationship. I don't wanna, I don't wanna have I don't wanna see my family turn away from me because I stand for the Lord. My family doesn't want to come to services, so I don't come to services. My family doesn't want to get involved in Bible studies, so I don't get involved in Bible studies. If we're putting our family ahead of Christ, we may find ourselves to be more like Judas than like this unnamed woman. What we need to be doing is we need to be making preparations in our life. Same way this woman was making preparations. To show that Jesus has value to me? What about my life this past week has shown to Jesus that I value You? I value You more than XYZ. My job, my hobbies, my friends, my life. Because I can tell you what He has done to show us that. He has come to this earth when He was God. He was at the right hand of God. He was in heaven, and He left that so He could be a part of our lives, so He could come into dark, dirty lives filled with sin, filled with disease, filled with violence, filled with hate. And so He could explain to us, describe, and show us what God really is. He entered into the houses of lepers that no one would else go into, and He made them pure. He entered into the lives of people who were stuck in in terrible situations and brought them out of it. And ultimately, he died. He died to show you your value to him. And that is the gospel message. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King. He came to this world so that you could come to his so that you could be a part of His. Are you making preparations for that? We would like to help you with that this this morning. If it is your desire, your will, to submit yourself to the King and to come and follow Him with all of your heart, to be made like Him in the image of God, and to, to walk in His footsteps and follow His life, which is a life of suffering. It's a life of persecution. But it's also a life of holiness and glory and honor. That's our desire here to walk in that same life and to help one another walk in it as well. If there's something we can do to assist you in in coming to that today or returning to it, won't you please let it be known as we stand and sing.